Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for those who want to get more from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rosie Candethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Our eminent and popular co-host, Dr. Rachel Wren, is off this week. So, from among the options in the lectionary for September 11th, 2022, Tim has picked Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. Now, verse 7 jumps into the middle of the golden calf story. Can you back up a bit to get us up to speed on what's going on here? Of course. So this story comes after a long section in Exodus that begins in chapter 24, where God invites Moses to ascend Mount Sinai and hear the laws of the covenant. This intensive masterclass in Israelite law lasted 40 days and 40 nights, a good good biblical time, right? And uh, then chapter 32 begins with a sort of meanwhile back on the ranch sort of shift, <laughs> right? Down at the foot of the mountain, the people are restless because Moses has been up there so long, and who knows, maybe he's dead or something. So they pressure Aaron to produce a representation of God so that they can worship and move forward in their journey to the promised land. Aaron obliges and produces this uh, golden calf and exclaims in verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And actually, a little side note, who makes that proclamation is a bit ambiguous in the Hebrew. It might have been Aaron, or it might have been the craftsmen, or maybe the people themselves. In any case, the people under Aaron's leadership begin to worship with sacrifices and a festival before this calf image. Hold up. Now, is the golden calf supposed to be an alternate god, or is that the Lord? Ah, right, right. Yeah, that's important. The people worship before this image as a representation of their God, the God of Israel, the Lord. Mm. It's not some other God. So the problem here isn't the worship of alternate gods. It's the making of an unauthorized image of their own God. That's important for the historical context of this passage. All right. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So the story is set during the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings before they had entered the promised land. But there's a historical connection between this episode and another pivotal moment in Israelite history, the reign of Jeroboam, king of Israel, who ruled, at least according to the Bible, during the latter part of the 10th century. So this is Jeroboam the first, right? Right, right. There's another Jeroboam, (laughs) Jeroboam II, who is also really important, but comes much later. This is the first the, the Jeroboam who became king of Israel when, according to 1 Kings, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, lost control of the northern tribes and they formed their own independent kingdom. So from a Judahite perspective, which, which is the perspective of the Bible as we have it, mm. Jeroboam I was sort of like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis who led the American Confederacy when the South seceded. In that way, Jeroboam I is portrayed as a great villain in the biblical text. Oh, that is great. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, his connection to all of this comes because when he feared that his people would revert to following Judah and Jerusalem with their worship center at Solomon's temple, Jeroboam I decided to set up alternative worship sites at the edges of his own northern kingdom in the cities Mm -hmm. of Dan and Bethel. And at those worship sites, he made physical representations of the Lord, Israel's God, in the form of golden bulls or calves. 
And at their dedication, according to 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam pronounces the exact same words we hear in Exodus 32. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So there is a direct literary connection between these two biblical episodes. And the general consensus within modern biblical scholarship is that the Exodus story was actually composed after the story about Jeroboam. In other words, it was written to foreshadow this later deviance that was enacted by Jeroboam. So this story in Exodus may be tied to the political and religious competition between the northern and southern kingdoms during the divided monarchy? It, it it appears that way. I mean, it's huh. a it's a literary way to invalidate the northern kingdom's worship practices by saying that way back, even before our people entered the land, this kind of thing almost led to our entire destruction, if not for the intervention of Moses. Oh, okay. So that historical and literary context is really helpful because it's it's really easy to slip into reading these stories as just a straightforward narration of history. But it's helpful to be reminded now and then that these stories weren't written in a vacuum. They were all tied up in the political and religious intrigues of their own day. Yes, exactly. And I would hasten to add that this kind of exploration into the ancient purposes or even propagandistic origins of these texts doesn't detract from their potential for meaningful modern interpretations. If anything, it highlights how potent these stories are and how they dig into real-world theological challenges. All right, all right. So so let's let's get into some of that. Now, you've laid a lot of the groundwork for us, but we need to look at the actual lectionary text, right? Right, right. <laughs> so the first reading this week picks up uh, when God becomes aware that all this golden calf stuff is going on down at the foot of the mountain. And God tells Moses to step aside so that God can obliterate these devious Israelites and start fresh with Moses as the new patriarch of a new chosen people. What an idea. That's pretty tempting. Yeah, right. (laughs) But Moses humbly refuses that offer and basically tells God to calm down and assess the situation. What are the Egyptians going to think if you wipe out the people? (laughs) So appealing to God's ego, right? I mean, that's going to work. Right. Yeah. I mean, at least that's how it's presented here. Yeah. And Moses also tosses in the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make a lasting people out of them. And God agrees to this. God backs off and decides not to obliterate the people. Nice work, Moses. What a moment. (laughs) Uh, Now, the NRSV says in verse 14, quote, the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people, close quote. Now, that seems like a pretty big deal. I've heard a lot that God never changes, but this seems like a full 180. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The idea that God is absolutely unchanging is a theological construct, uh, one that might be true, but it isn't supported by this biblical text. <laughs> right. The, the two relevant Hebrew words here are shuv and nicham. Moses uses the imperative or command form of both of these words in verse 12. Shuv is that clear 180. It means to turn around and go back. Back off would be a valid translation. Huh. And we often see it rendered as repent. But it's, it's definitely a change of course in any case. And then that second word, nicham, which Moses also tells God to do, and that verse 14 reports that God actually did, means something like be comforted or consoled or have compassion, 
this nicham is a it's an emotion word. I'd translate it here as calm down, mm. where the NRSV translates it as changed his mind, which is also a fine translation. So God calmed down and backed off from the violence that God had planned to do. Okay, so this might be a tangent, uh, but is this related at all to what happens at the end of the book of Jonah? <laughs> I'm glad you heard that resonance. In fact, this is almost word for word in Hebrew what the narrator yeah. in Jonah says in chapter 3 when the Ninevites plead for mercy. It says God calmed down or changed his mind or whatever and backed off from the violence that God had planned to do to them. What's striking there in Jonah is that this divine relenting, which here in Exodus is achieved by Moses' appeal to God's special relationship with Israel, in Jonah that compassion is extended to Israel's arch enemies when they change their behavior. Both texts highlight God's responsiveness and willingness to hold off from punishment. In Jonah, because the Ninevites themselves changed their behavior, and in Exodus, because Moses pleads on behalf of wayward people. So, in a way, this is a story about forgiveness. But the prompting of God's forgiveness in Exodus 32 is the intercession or intervention of Moses on the people's behalf. Now, I could see a sermon coming out of that theme. Is that where you're headed? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a way to go. I would only want to hesitate a bit and bring out a preaching pitfall here. Oh, okay. So what's the pitfall? Well, if you're preaching this text and leaning into the theme of forgiveness and perhaps the power of intercession, just remember that where the election ends is not the end of this story. Mm. After Moses gets God to calm down, Moses goes down and checks things out. And to make a long and gruesome story short, Moses instigates a disciplinary slaughter of like 3,000 random Israelites. So the story doesn't have a happy ending. Yeah, that's to put it mildly. Really, this is one of the most challenging stories of violence in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, there's the end of Esther, too. Right. (laughs) Which is a passage that's very near and dear to your heart, I know. Yes. Okay, in any case, this story is not about forgiveness in the classical sense. It's more about the threat of complete divine abandonment being averted and about a remnant being preserved to fulfill God's longstanding promises to the ancestors. I think that's probably the most relevant message in the later context of that conflict between Israel and Judah that we were talking about earlier. Israel was destined to fall, which they did, historically speaking, but Judah was preserved to continue to fulfill God's promises to the patriarchs. And I think that that sort of uh, theological theme would have resonated uh, in the time of Judah's exile and on into the post-exilic era. Okay, so what about modern faith communities? Ah, well, I, I, I think that this still emphasizes those theological principles that God sticks with God's promises, that God doesn't ultimately abandon God's people, and significantly here, that God is responsive to human interventions on behalf of others. And those themes, I think, are a lot of fodder for sermons uh, on those principles. And if you do take a sermon in that direction, this story is a striking portrayal of all of that in action. Well, you've given us a lot to think about there uh, and to prep for these sermons this week. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks, Tim. Sure thing. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources, and now your very own First Reading swag on the merch page. 
If you're on Facebook, you can also find us there. Give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you also to those who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that sustains us. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethel. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.